Husky 54 of Florida was on a Swiss vacation. He went hang gliding for the very first time. He ended up hanging on for dear life because the pilot, who should have known better, forgot to hook him into the harness safely. So as they took off, the, they both sort of panicked, and the pilot grabs on to Mr. Gursky, and he grabs on as hard as he can to him and to the hang glider above, and he hung on at heights of 4,000 feet at the peak, running 45 miles an hour until they finally came to the ground. And when it was all over with, he had a badly fractured wrist and a torn bicep from holding on, and the pilot was eventually able to land the hang glider. We're starting into a new study today in First Thessalonians in the New Testament that's entitled Hold Fast to the Faith. The experience of the hang glider in Switzerland is similar to the experience of the believer in faith. We are to hold fast to our faith, but we also know that if Christ were not holding fast to us, we'd never make it to the ground. There's some other similarities here as well because we're not promised that the journey is going to be smooth or it's going to be pain-free or without problems along the way. But what we are assured of is that we're going to make it safely home and that Christ will hold us fast in the midst of it. Thessalonica was a very important city of its day, located in what is now modern-day Greece. It was a bustling seaport at the head of the Thermaic Gulf, uh, populated with around 200,000 people, which was a large city in those days. As a port city, it was important because it was a center of trade and also communication since it was at the crossroads of the Roman Ignatian Way as well as the road that ran to the north, to the Danube. Thessalonica was a city that was the largest city in that region, and it was also the capital of the province. Paul did what Paul often did when he went into a new city on his missionary journeys. He would go into the synagogue where he would find some commonality at least out of the background that he had come from. He would proclaim the gospel. Sometimes they would believe and at other times it was not as good of a reception. But when he went into the synagogue at Thessalonica, they in fact did believe some of those Jews and they came to faith in Christ. But the scripture seems to indicate that the larger number of people who came to Christ were Gentiles, and the church was likely made up predominantly of Gentiles. The record of the church being planted is found in Acts chapter 17, which tells us a little bit about the process, and it also tells us that Paul had to leave Thessalonica under duress, as often is the case when the gospel and the light of God's truth penetrates darkness, there was conflict, and there were difficulties, and there was persecution. And the Jews stirred up a crowd that ultimately became a mob and created a riot scene in the marketplace. They brought some wicked men in to do their work. And Paul was under duress having to figure out how he was going to get out of the city with the people that were there serving with him. So what the believers did was when nightfall fell, they sent Paul and his companions away to Berea, which was about 50 miles away to the west. When Paul gets to Berea, he also finds a receptive place for the gospel. People are believing, but it wasn't long before the opposition from Thessalonica came. They sent some people there, and they began to oppose him in that city as well. So Paul 
put out to sea for Athens, and then Silas and Timothy would join him just a little while later in Athens. After a short time in Athens, Paul felt the need to receive a report back from the new church in Thessalonica. He wanted to know what was happening. After all, they had preached the gospel there. There had been persecution. He knew that it was a difficult circumstance that that church found themselves in, and he wanted to know what was going on. So he sends Timothy back to minister there and also to bring a report back. Timothy brings back a report, and it was a blessing to Paul because that report was a good report. The gospel had taken root. What is the gospel? The gospel is the truth that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and on the third day he rose from the dead according to the scriptures. The gospel is that though God is holy and we are sinners, God has made the way for us to come back to him, that he's given his son to us as a gift, that Jesus Christ would come and live a life that only he could live, that he would fulfill the law of God, that he would willingly give himself on the cross, that he would bear the wrath of God for our sins, that he would be buried in a borrowed tomb, that he would be raised from the dead and then eventually ascend back to heaven, to the right hand of God the Father. And this gospel had taken root in Thessalonica, and not only had it taken root, the believers were producing fruit. There was evidence that they were doing what they were supposed to be doing as a result of what God had done in their lives. They were loving one another. They were holding fast to the faith. Uh, The gospel was going forth from their city, and Paul was impressed with what he learned about the church And he, in turn, wrote 1 Thessalonians to encourage and to instruct the believers there. He wrote this first letter around 51 AD, which would make it one of the earliest letters that Paul wrote just a short time after he had preached there. So there wasn't much of a separation in time from when he had been there and ministered and people had come to faith. And yet, in a short amount of time, the church was already flourishing and good things were happening. And Keep in mind that the majority of the church was made up of new believers, and they needed encouragement. They needed to know that this faith that they had and this Jesus that they had believed in was trustworthy and that they could follow him and believe that he was going to see them through the difficulties of life. Now, if I were to give you just a basic outline of this letter, I would divide it very simply into two parts. Chapters 1 through 3 comprise thanksgiving and encouragement as Paul introduces the subject and begins to talk to them about why they were to be commended for the way that they were living and the way they were responding to the Word of God. And then chapters 4 and 5 would be instruction and exhortation. He's beginning to lay out additional principles for what it means to be a church, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to endure in persecution, what it means to place your hope in Jesus. And we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians and about 17 messages as we go through this. Uh, The passage we'll consider today is a beautiful setup for next Sunday and Resurrection Sunday as we'll make our way a little bit further into the into the text in chapter 1, and it will remind us of what Jesus has done on our behalf. But today, we're going to look at the first four verses. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to look with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, which is the Latin name for Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Verse 2, we 
always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Now we'll press pause here at the end of verse 4, although the thought is continued. We'll pick that next section up next week when we look at the second part of chapter 1. But Paul introduces this letter by including Silas and Timothy who were with him when the church was started. So here we have Silas, who was a Jewish believer. Apparently, he was a very gifted servant of God. Uh, He was directed by the apostles in Jerusalem, you might remember, to carry the directives of the Jerusalem council to Antioch. Uh, Paul had Silas accompany him on the second missionary journey after he and Barnabas had a dispute over Mark. And then Timothy. Timothy was a young protege of the Apostle Paul. He was a son in the faith. He was a young man who had a Gentile father and a Jewish mother. Uh, Paul had mentored him. He had accompanied him on his missionary journeys. And then he also would later assign him to particular pastoral responsibilities, depending on what the need was within the places that they had ministered and been on mission. The letter is addressed to the church, to the called out ones. And this is an important address here in the introduction because it is the idea that we are not a building, we are the people of God. In other words, we are the fellowship of believers who have taken hold of the gospel because God has taken hold of us. We have gathered together so that we might be sent out. And one of Paul's favorite designations in the New Testament is the idea of us being in Christ. He takes the ideas just a little bit further here in these opening verses as he speaks of being in God the Father and in Christ Jesus. But to be in Christ means that we've been redeemed. It means that we're set apart. It means that we are now children of God who are to be servant of God, servants of God in the kingdom of God for the glory of God. That's our purpose. That's who we are. And as Paul commonly does in his letters, he adds grace to you and peace. And he says, we've been giving thanks to God constantly for you in our prayers. Did you know that churches are known for a lot of things? Uh, Churches have a testimony, just like individuals within the church have a testimony. Too often, it's a very negative testimony. They say, well, you know about that church over there. Can't, none of them can get along. Or you know that church over there, they're dying. Or you know that church over there, they're hardly doing anything for the kingdom. Or you know that church over there, they've gotten way off track. And they're not commended in that. They're instead condemned. But there are words of commendation that follow. Paul is grateful to God for what has happened in their midst. In fact, they are a source of joy because they're serving as a model for all Christians. And I'd say to you today, Cross Lanes Baptist Church, that we should be serving as a model for all Christians, that people should be able to look at this church and the people who gather in this church and our love for God and our love for people and our concern for God's work in the world. And they should say, those are people who are to be commended because they've believed and they've not just believed, they followed in the path of Jesus and they're representing Jesus to the world. Now, what follows here in these few verses that we're going to consider are some lessons that I think we can learn about how we too can be commended, how God could see us and say, this is a church that gets it. They understand 
the gospel. They understand what it means to follow Jesus. They're sincere people. They're humble people. They're desiring to do the work of the kingdom. This is who they are in Christ. And the first lesson here is that you are to hold fast and be diligent in your work of faith. Hold fast and be diligent in your work of faith. Look again in verse 3. He says, we recall or we remember um, your work of faith, or he says specifically here, your work produced by faith. Now, this idea of work is interesting because it is strenuous work. That's the word that is used, strenuous work. And as I often say in the context of Ephesians, where it says that the pastors are to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, the reason it's called the work of the ministry is because it's work. That's why. And people who are useful in the kingdom of God understand that it requires work, not so that we can be saved, but because we have been saved. Now understand, this is not at all in conflict with the teaching that salvation is by grace through faith. These truths are presented clearly in the scripture. And we can say unequivocally that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. There is no other way to be saved. It is the gift of God. It is receiving and resting on Christ alone for salvation. It's by faith that we enter into the kingdom. It's by faith that we rest in what Christ has done for us. It is by faith that God the Father looks at us and sees us as justified sinners and the righteousness of Christ is credited on our behalf. But watch this. Salvation by faith alone in Jesus alone will always result in the work of faith. These two truths are side by side in the Bible. In Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 8 and 9, Paul says, For you are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not from works, lest any man should boast. But then he follows with that, right beside it in the very next verse. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So right there, side by side in the scripture, we're shown this truth that there is absolutely nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. There is no boasting. When we get to heaven, we'll not tell God all the things that we have done, and God will somehow accept us into his presence. When we get to heaven, it will be because we've come by the way of the cross. It will be because we've accepted God's gift of salvation and forgiveness and eternal life, and God has received us into his presence. But along the way, we will have understood that the very purpose for which God saved us is so that we might work for him and serve him and labor in the harvest fields, following in the example of Jesus until God takes us home. Salvation by faith alone in Christ alone will always result in a work of faith. Now, some people have said that James and his writing somehow contradicted this or that if you were to put the writings of Paul and the writings of James side by side, that they would somehow be contradictory because James seems to be pushing more toward the idea of work. But let's listen to what the Bible says in James chapter 2 and verse 18. James says, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. And then he says this in verse 26 of chapter 2. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So what do we make of that? Well, we recall your work produced by 
faith is what Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica. So he's saying this faith that you have in Jesus, it is producing work as the natural outflow, as the spiritual consequence, if you will, of what God has done on your behalf. Now, I think we run into a couple of common errors here that people sometimes get trapped into. One is easy believism. Easy believism would be resting on a profession of faith, regardless of whether or not there's evidence or fruit in your life that you have truly been saved. The other error would be work salvation, which is somehow mixing works and faith to earn salvation. Or if we were to take that yet another step, work salvation is not only in terms of saying that we can work to earn our salvation, it is saying that there is something that we can do to lose our salvation. You understand that if you say there's something that you can do to lose your salvation, then you, can, you are saying that the cross is of no consequence, that the death of Jesus Christ at Calvary was not sufficient. But the Bible says God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It does not say in there that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might work to keep our salvation. Nowhere will you find that in the Bible. And we've got to be careful about these twin errors of easy believism or work salvation. The work of faith is a responsibility to where we take ownership of living out our faith in a real way. And the work of faith represents an opportunity to glorify God. Now, in some ways, we've so compartmentalized our faith that we think about it only when we're doing like organized church stuff, right? We think about only if we're signing up for a particular ministry, are we undertaking our responsibility of the work of faith, or only if we're in a recognized role, are we really doing something that is the work of faith, But that's not how the Bible presents Christianity at all. The Bible presents Christianity that is, you do whatever you do, you do it as unto the Lord. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it all for the glory of God. So your vocation is part of your work of faith. How you live with your family and how you lead your family and the the values and the priorities that you set for your family, that is a part of your work of faith. And then, yes, as we collectively come together and do the work of God in the kingdom work, yes, that's a part of it, but it's to be all-encompassing. Worship is not relegated to an hour or so on Sunday morning. Worship is not only when we're doing something that is recognized as worship. No, life is worship. And if life is worship, that changes your perspective. You'll no longer see God as a convenience to come only when you need a spiritual fill-up. You'll not see the church as a means to your end. You'll not see the church as somehow serving you. You'll see yourself as a part of that body of Christ, as a part of that called out group and then sent out. And you'll find your place and your purpose in the kingdom of God. And says so Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, that we are to let our light shine before men so they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Our faith should be energetic. It should be active and living. It should be producing good works. And the work of faith is the evidence of saving faith. So let me ask you a question. Is your faith producing work? Is there enough evidence in your life to convict you of being a Christian? Does your work of faith provide sufficient evidence that you possess saving faith. 
the lesson is hold fast and be diligent in your work of faith. Then the second lesson, hold fast and increase in your labor of love. We recall, verse 3, your labor motivated by love. Here we are again talking about working. We're working in the first verse that we referenced, first part of the verse that we referenced here. We're laboring in this verse. And the word labor means strenuous work. It means hard work even to the point of exhaustion. And the motivation is, don't miss this, the motivation is our love for the Lord. Our motivation is our love for other people that comes from our love for the Lord. Our motivation is our concern for the result of our lives that it would evidence that we, in fact, love God. Now, there's different kinds of love, and I won't bore you with all that, but the kind of love that music, lyrics, and culture often present is typically a matter of feelings. It's emotional, it's mysterious, you can't put your finger on it, you don't really know what it is, but the love that's presented here is agape love. This is the love of God. So the Bible defines God as inherent to his character, that he is love, God is love. And we love because God first loved us. Agape love is a word that was not used very much until Christians took it up and began to use it, but it's the idea that love acts for the best intention of the person that it's being extended to. In other words, because God is love, the love of God is intentional. It's focused on the well-being of others. And if our love for God is in keeping with his love for us, then it will be focused and intentional and concerned about the well-being of others. Love is the heartfelt affection of the Christian in response to the love that God has shown toward us, especially through the gift of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's one of the mistakes I think we make in the church, and we've been doing it for a long time because it's easy to get caught up in this cycle. It's to point to the symptoms of what people are not doing and try to motivate them negatively by guilt or by pointing the obvious out. You're not sharing your faith. You're not giving. You're not serving. You're not doing this or that. And I think that's the wrong approach completely. The approach should be to speak to the heart. The approach should be to point people to the beauty and the worthiness of Jesus as our Savior. The point should be to, to direct people to the hope that we have in Him and understanding that God is the gospel, that Jesus is the treasure of our salvation, and that the love of God is super abundant and overflowing to us. And if all of these things are true, you'll not have to beg people to do what people would rightly be motivated to do if their love was in the right place. Very different way of thinking. See, if you love God, nobody's going to have to beg you to, to worship Him faithfully or to guilt you into it. If you love God, you'll not have to be begged or guilted into using your resources to further the work of God in His kingdom. If you love God, nobody will have to beg you to, to serve other people and to get your hands dirty and to do the work of faith. If you love God, nobody will have to beg you to tell other people about him. You understand that a who's your one emphasis in the prayer that we're doing, in this 30-day focus that we're doing, the emphasis itself is worthless if our love is not where it should be. But if we're stirred with gratitude toward God for what he's done for us, and a love for other people who need to know the same grace that we've experienced, that'll be life-changing. 
It'll be transformational. Romans chapter 12 and verse 9 through 11, Paul writes this. Let love be without hypocrisy, detest evil, cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lack diligence and zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. So here's how he defines what love is and what love does. Love and righteousness go hand in hand. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. Christian love detests what is evil and clings to what is good. Christian love is a response to God's love and a reflection of God's love. And there's a lot of talk in churches about love, as there should be, but it cannot be at the expense of losing the distinction between right and wrong and good and evil. Love is to be demonstrated, according to what Paul wrote in Romans, by loving our brothers and sisters as we show preference toward one another and as we give honor to one another. Folks, we are in one of the most selfish generations that has ever existed on the face of the planet. We are so individualistic that people are separated and they're isolated and, and they're not living in community as they could and should. So as the church, we have an opportunity to put on display what a healthy community looks like. Not a perfect community, far from perfect, but a community that is healthy because they're continually resting in the grace of God, continually helping one another along the way, bearing one another's burdens, encouraging one another, spurring each other on as we head toward that finish line. And people see that kind of community and they'll say, there's something different about that than a lot of what you see in the world. And the way people are so isolated and siloed and individualistic. And I would say to you that love is the antidote for spiritual laziness. Paul says we're to be fervent in spirit. There's to be a zealous nature about us and love ought to be diligent and fervent you remember jesus in the book of revelation he's speaking to the seven churches and he has something a little bit different as as he speaks to each one of the seven churches but he has a word especially for the church at ephesus the church at ephesus was noted by jesus for their works for their labor for their endurance for their unwillingness to tolerate evil people. They also had great discernment about false teachers. They endured hardships for the name of Christ and had not grown weary. But Jesus said this to the church at Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 4. But I have this against you. You've abandoned your first love. I don't know where you are spiritually today. The Spirit of God does. He knows whether or not you're walk with Christ is dynamic and alive. He knows whether or not you're seeking him in word and the prayer. He knows whether or not you're fervent about the things of God or they're just secondary in your life. And I'm here to tell you today that the path back is the path that Jesus gave to the church at Ephesus because he said to them, remember how far you have fallen, repent, and return to the works that you did at first. Jesus said, hey, you're over there on a side road somewhere. This is the way that you're supposed to be on. You're over there wandering aimlessly somewhere in the desert. And over here is where the oasis is to be found. And we've got to keep pressing on even when we're not perhaps feeling it as we should. Because we know what we believe is true. And we want to honor God and we want to love him as we should. 
hold fast and increase in your labor of love. Then the third and last lesson is hold fast and strengthen in your endurance of hope. Verse 3, once again, he says, We recall your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We recall the endurance that is present in your life. We started a new study in discipleship on Wednesday evenings focused on hope. And I gave this definition of hope from Lee Strobel on Wednesday evening. as one of the definitions. Listen to this. He said, hope is the inextinguishable flicker God ignites in our souls to keep us believing in the prevailing power of his light, even when we are surrounded by utter darkness. This, this is essentially what Paul saying in the church of Thessalonica. You're surrounded by utter darkness. You're in the midst of hardship, and yet you're holding on fast. You're holding on. You're, you're holding on to that endurance of hope. You know that there's something more coming. And the primary thing that Paul is going to point us to in 1 Thessalonians is not just the hope that we have in the immediate that God is present and with us, but that Jesus will return. That's the whole crescendo of the deal as he gets to chapter 4 and he talks about the second coming of Jesus. And he's reminding us that there is a greater hope, that there is an eternal hope that we can anchor our lives down in. And the truth is endurance and difficulties flows from hope. Now, you might have thought that endurance was quiet, passive survival. You might have thought that it was just hanging on by a thread and just getting through till the next day. That's not what this hope is at all. This hope is a spirit that bears things, not simply with a resignation, but with a blazing hope. This is a hope that points us beyond, so we're holding on strongly. And hope in our Lord Jesus Christ is especially looking forward and anticipating what he's going to do in the future as he returns. James writes a little bit about this hope. I won't read the whole passage, but go back and read it for yourself sometime in chapter 1 and also in chapter 5. He makes two references. He says, first of all, count it all joy when you experience various trials. I've always read that and thought, what in the world was James thinking? But that's what he says, count it all joy. And then when he gets down to chapter 5, he references two illustrations that would help us think about what this endurance and hope really is like. The first illustration he uses is that of the prophets. He just speaks of the prophets generally, kind of collectively. One of my favorite Old Testament prophets is Jeremiah. If Jeremiah were crafting his pastoral resume and sending it out, nobody would give him an interview. Nobody would want to talk to him because he continually preached to people who gave him negative responses. He was subject to physical persecution, beaten and put into stocks and imprisoned and thrown into a muddy cistern. He had to deal with false prophets that mocked him and even called him brazenly a liar. And the people to whom he was speaking ended up in exile. And old Jeremiah saw Jerusalem smoldering in the ruins of what had happened because of the disobedience of the people. And that's when he wrote Lamentations chapter 3. You remember what he said in Lamentations chapter 3? In light of what he was seeing, he said, The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases For his compassions, they fail not. They are new every morning. And he said to God, God, great is your faithfulness. 
What a word. Nothing's trending your way. There seems like nothing good happening. It looks like hope could potentially be lost. And Jeremiah can proclaim to the Lord that his loving kindness and his mercy never ceases. And he can look to the God of heaven, regardless of the circumstances that are around him. He can look to the God of heaven and he can say, God, great is your faithfulness. Friends, that's the place we've got to get to in our Christian walk. And I don't know what you're struggling with right now. And you might have thought that all hope was lost, that there was nothing that you could do. There was no way out. You don't know what to do next. The circumstances are pressing in. While you may not have an immediate answer to your current problem, you can look to heaven and you can say, God, great is your faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning. And you can be trusted. And the second example that James gives us is a man named Job. You remember Job, the blameless and upright man who feared the Lord and turned away from evil, the man who was a man of integrity, super rich, huge flocks, seven sons, three daughters, and he lost it all in almost a moment's time, and suffering followed. In the midst of all of that, Job humbled himself before a mighty God. And he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The endurance of hope requires surrender. We are beckoned to come to the place in our lives where we can say with confidence, God is sovereign and my hope is in him. Period. The endurance of hope promises blessing that this is not all there is. Oh, there's much more to come. Beyond our greatest imagination, what God's going to do for his people in eternity. And I close with this idea, and I find it in verse 4. You are chosen and loved by God. You might not have heard anything else I said this morning, but if you'll come to Christ as your Savior, you can take hold of this truth that you are chosen and loved by God. Oswald Chambers wrote in his devotional, My Most for His Highest, when we think about this idea of God's rescuing us and choosing us, saving us, he said, keep that note of greatness in your creed. It's not just that you've got God, but that he's got you. Why is God at work in me, bending, breaking, molding, doing as he chooses? For one purpose and one purpose only. That he might be able to say, that is my man, that is my woman, that is my child. Who is deeply loved. The deep love of God that brings us to know him is the same love that will compel us 
to hold fast to the faith and to give glory to our Redeemer. Let's bow our heads together just for a moment as we pray. In just a moment here, we're going to have a song of response and invitation. Perhaps you're here today and you don't know Christ. You have nothing to hold on to because you've not taken hold of the gospel. God is calling you to come to him through faith in his son. Today could be the day on this Palm Sunday, 2019, when you could say yes to Jesus. Next Sunday, we're going to have believer's baptism. We'll have at least one, but maybe there's somebody here that would say, I, I followed Christ. I know him as my Savior, but I've not publicly professed him in baptism. What a great day it would be, Easter Sunday, to make your faith known that you're following Jesus. God, we're grateful for your word. You've shown us these great truths of what it means to know you and live for you and how you keep us and hold us along the way. We simply say thank you and we love you. We pray that you would use this time now as we close out this service. May your name be glorified through it and all the good that would come from it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.